Hello, this is Tom McSweeney and you're very welcome to the Maritime Ireland radio show. God almighty, this is a serious, serious issue and it's not alone an issue but it's grossly unfair on the fishing communities around the country. The whole situation, the whole thing that was negotiated is crazy. When you look at true figures that are coming out, they're absolutely frightening rather than setting up committees. With these facts and figures that academically are proving, you slam it on the table and you give it to every single MEP, every Irish MEP, every person over there that's willing to listen at all and show the unfairness of the situation. Use the system, the same as other countries have used it. So use the system and take it into the European Court of Justice and say, is this a fair situation for Ireland and the fishing communities? That may have shocked you. Dr. Kevin Flannery is one of Ireland's leading fisheries experts and what he has to say in this programme is a revelation of how European countries have taken over Irish fishing waters. We'll also analyse whether Ireland is as well prepared as it should be for the development of offshore wind energy. There's recognition we need to do something. We're aware of the resources but I don't believe we're fully aware at many levels of what's needed to get this over the line. That's Shane Heverin, a master mariner who has started a new marine company in County Mayo, with whom we'll discuss the offshore energy sector in this edition of the Maritime Ireland radio show, which provides comprehensive news, comment and opinion about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. We'll also discuss the government's decision to protect basking sharks in Irish waters, report on why the RNLI at Loch Ree is linking up with the Inland Waterways Association. Hear about Athai's link with Shackleton and the finding of his ship Endurance and recall how an Irishman was the last victim of the British Royal Navy's brutal punishment of hanging a man from the yardarm of a naval sailing vessel. He was from Cork and, like me, his name was Tom McSweeney. There is a lack of national public recognition and understanding of the fishing industry. A few weeks ago, on the front page of its weekend review supplement, the Irish Times published a full-page article asking the question, Can Ireland feed itself? It had around 1,700 words with two photographs and included a large map of Ireland populated by cattle. Not once was the word fishing used, nor the fishing industry mentioned. It said that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has exposed vulnerability in Ireland's food policy. Fishing provides seafood, doesn't it? 
On this program, you'll hear that Irish fishermen who land fresh fish daily are being undercut by the importation every week of containers of frozen cod from Russia, a valuable species restricted here because of concern about its future. Irish boats may not be able to go to sea because of the skyrocketing price of marine diesel, while the government is proposing to force 60 more Irish boats and their crews out of fishing in the third decommissioning programme since Ireland joined the European Union. Dr Kevin Flannery of Dingle in County Kerry is one of the country's leading fisheries experts, a former fisheries officer of the Department of the Marine, and after several years of trying, he's obtained figures showing how the biggest EU nations have annexed Irish waters for their own benefit, while the Irish industry faces, he says, annihilation. The figures are shocking. Well, you see, what I've been looking for for years, Tom, and what I've been asking for is, rather than the usual stock book and the whole lot, is somebody to do a direct analysis of what legally is showing up to be taken and who is fishing in Irish waters and who is really gaining from it and what we got. Because we all know we got a bad deal back in the 70s. We got a quota deal in the, in the 80s, which was ridiculous. And when you look at the true figures that are coming out, these figures were taken from the European stat figures that I got. And they're a couple of years old now. So with Britexit, the situation has got quite dramatically worse. So they're absolutely frightening when you see the volume of courses that certain countries have. And most of the European countries have. And we have no access to their waters. Some people say we have access for tuna. But tuna is with ICAT. And we know all about tuna because we're not even allowed to catch a, a one bluefin tuna, whereas even Norway now are have given access to it. So the whole situation, the whole thing that was negotiated is crazy. Now, the minister has set up uh, a common fishery review group and the best will in the world and the best luck in the world. But in reality, we have to have a minister rather than setting up committees. You have to have somebody to go over with these facts and figures that academically are proving. And you go over and you slam it on the table and you give it to every single MEP, every Irish MEP, every... A person over there that's willing to listen at all and show the unfairness of the situation and how, in the name of God, civil servants have walked away from this, are the same civil servants that have been in charge of it for the past 30 years, and nobody has seriously questioned how we have finished up in this situation where we are being prosecuted, where being, the industry is being virtually annihilated, and we have the most retentive inspection purposes uh, regime in the whole lot of the EU. And what I've shown in these figures is what legally these countries are saying they're taking and what they're entitled to. In actual fact, everyone, every fisherman out there knows there's quite a lot more being taken because some countries, the implementation of EU law is, uh, how would you say, um, surprisingly uh, very limited in some countries. So these facts and figures are to show people, to show the general public, to show the TDs, and I hope the producers' organisation, plonk them before every TD and every MEP in the country, and that people will stand up and say, God Almighty, this is a serious, serious issue. And it's not alone an issue, but it's grossly unfair on the fishing communities around the country. The fact that you got these figures, they must be known widely then to officials dealing with quota arrangements. Oh, they are, Tom. They've been, 
they're known from the year since in 83 or 85 once we started on quotas and they are known and the access of these quotas since the quotas were brought into place at that point. They weren't brought in in 1972 when Brendan O'Kelly came home and he organised a dozen good fishermen to say, OK, boys, let's target a species like the mackerel. And that has proven to be quite successful because you got people to invest in it and he realised that the more we catch and the more we log the better it was. So when the court negotiations came up into being with the axis of Spain and Portugal, we were given these quotas and they were based on historical rights and all that kind of stuff. And we hadn't cut as much as what. And so therefore we finished up with this. So the officialdom have known this for years. This isn't a hidden secret. But what I'm trying to do is put them out in the public domain and let people see the unfairness of what the Irish fishing industry and what the communities and what fishermen are facing in an everyday and what is happening out there. It's out of sight, out of mind, because we don't see the Marginis, we don't see the Dutch factory vessels, we don't see the hundreds of Spanish. There's 700 vessels operating at any given time in Irish waters fishing. 90% of the public don't see it. But if you produce these figures and you give it to the TDs and the whole lot, and this gives a powerful to the review committee to go back to Brussels and say, Lads, are you willing, are you happy with what Ireland is getting? And if they say they are, then, you know, you might as well throw your hat in it. Or else you have to have a minister that will stand up and say, this is unacceptable. But setting up committees and looking into it is, is a start, maybe. But will they be strong enough? Uh, by the time the committee gets around, you'll have a change of government, or you'll have a change of parties and change of minister. Enough is enough. We have to get a fair slice of the pie. And these figures show it. It would seem, looking coldly at the figures, that other countries really have a huge economic resource in Irish waters. The most fascinating thing, Tom, down through the years was when the first of the Irish vessels started landing their tuna into France and everything, and there was no fishery officers. There was no fishery officers in France. And they said, this is fascinating, Kevin, there was no fishery officers there. And uh, the people, the reason being, France didn't require it because they had enough quota and they have this 33% virtually of the European quota in Irish waters, you know. So they didn't really need fishery officers. They didn't need enforcement that they weren't doing it. And other countries, certain other countries, didn't do enforcement because of the rule of law in relation to the local authorities that were running the fisheries in those places is still up for debate. Uh, but our problem was the civil servants in this country and its way with everything is that, number one, the European Union and the piece of legislation they bring forth has to be implemented down to the T in this country. Whereas other countries take it upon themselves, their community counts, number one, the Spanish very much so, the French very much so. And so, therefore, they targeted the resources and they have the resources to target and take this. It was premeditated. All this is premeditated and a foregone conclusion from the initial thing. Now, we're going to find it very, very hard to claim back anything, but at least if you put the figures out in the public domain and put it before everybody, rather than saying, oh, go with cap in hand, this is, these figures have shown the reality of what's been taken. So there has to be a term of fairness. And if there isn't, there is a thing called the European Court. And honest to God, if the civil servants in the Department of Marine were strong enough, they would say, OK, 
Minister, let's take this to the European Court of Justice and see if it's fair. That's the final. Even, even without giving up or saying that we're not going to agree to anything, use the, use the system, the same as other countries have used it. So use the system and take it into the European Court of Justice and say, is this a fair situation for Ireland and the fishing communities? Dr. Kevin Flannery, fisheries expert and biologist, based in Dingle, where he's one of the founders of Dingle Aquarium. You can read the figures he's disclosed for each European nation in my article in the April edition of the Marine Times. What's happening in Irish waters is shocking. I chaired a session of a conference in the past few weeks about the development of offshore wind energy. One of the speakers was a master mariner, Captain Shane Heverin, Managing Director of Agent Marine, a new company getting involved in the sector. I was interested in his career change from seagoing to shoreside and why he had made this move. The company was formed by myself and two other master mariners with experience in the offshore energy sector. Having kept an eye on developments in Ireland and the proposed changes to legislation, we felt it time to uh, review the industry and set up our own consultancy firm in Ireland to support the embryonic industry as it uh, took root, so to speak. Where are you based? We're based in Mayo, so there's myself and my two colleagues who are Galway men, so there's always a bit of competition there about where we'll set up. But for now we're in Mayo, but we're working internationally and only this week was our first job in Ireland. And what is that doing? Uh, that job was a vessel survey to make sure she's up to spec for conducting some survey operations off the Irish coast for some wind farms. You've had a long career yourself at sea. I have. I started approximately 20 years ago in Bishopstown in CIT. I finished my cadetship here in, the, in MCI. I came back about 12, 14 years ago to do my chief mate master's. And I got my first command in about 2015, March 2015 actually. Life at sea has changed quite a bit. It has. Uh, for both good and bad, when I first started off, there was no internet, no phones. Uh, you'd get a, a phone call on a Sunday, it was 17 minutes for $20, and I was making $10 a day. So it was an expensive phone call that you worked hard for, and you spent half it saying, what? Can you say that again? I can't hear you. So that was frustrating, but as times have passed, you know, internet and Facebook and WhatsApp and everything... Now, some would argue that there's a, a problem with that, with the social cohesion on board, because when you had no access to movies or internet, people would congregate and they'd have a few beers and a mess and parties and everything like that. Whereas now, it, some would view it as a more lonely uh, post, because a lot more people stay in their cabins and they'll watch their movies and TV series, Netflix and any other things that they may have downloaded before they've gone offshore. You were making a strong point about the renewables and the future of that. The point... You made particularly, do we know really what we're getting into, if I take it correctly? No. Uh, There's a recognition we need to do something. We're aware of the resources, but I don't believe we're fully aware at many levels of what's needed to get this over the line. And do you think there are good opportunities if if Ireland does grasp the opportunities that are there? Absolutely. The expertise is in the country. I mean, I myself, as a master mariner in this industry for 
15 years in the uh, dynamic positioning and offshore construction side of things. We're here. My colleagues have similar backgrounds. We can do the job. They're technicians, engineers, and all the other experts who are scattered around the world who'd be quite happy to come back and do the job here. We don't know about it yet in this country. You made a very strong point that the Irish are good at what they do in the maritime sector all over the world. Yeah, that's correct. I've uh, come across uh, colleagues in Singapore, offshore Tanzania, Mozambique, Trinidad, and generally speaking, fairly well regarded, a very can-do attitude. But these same people have recognised that that attitude only goes so far, and that's one of the things that we'd be keen to address here at this conference, is we need to make sure we are up to scratch, our health and safety procedures are up to scratch, because... There's uh, the companies that be coming in, the construction companies doing these jobs are risk adverse. We have to prove ourselves and the usual it'll be okay on the night attitude just won't cut it. We need to know what we're doing. We need to do it right first time and every time to uh, make sure that we keep these jobs local. And one of the big points being made was the liaison between the development, the coastal communities, the fishing industries and people generally being aware and getting together and moving forward as, as a community, perhaps, a maritime community, to take the opportunities? Yes. Um, what I have noticed today, there seems to be a slight them-and-us attitude, and I think that's a pity. I think it can be overcome. My colleague Robert Keneally, one of the founders of the company with me, is from a fishing background himself, and he didn't necessarily see the opportunities when he was younger. Robert would be a strong advocate of people working in this sort of industry. And when they have their four weeks leave, maybe hauling pots locally and contributing to the local fishing industry in that manner. So communication, talking to each other, listening, all very important then? That's key to everything. Communication and understanding is what makes it all work. Captain Shane Heverin of Aegean Marine of Castle Bar. Now Anton O'Callaghan has a roundup of current maritime news. Increased diesel prices are making fishing uneconomic, according to industry representative organisations, which say this poses a threat to the food supply chain. The fish producer organisations have called for government intervention to reduce prices and protect food supplies. John Lynch is chief executive of the Irish South and East Fish Producers Organisation. The boats are at sea at the moment and... um the fuel they have on board has been expensive to purchase. And I'd say a lot of vessels, after they finish this trip, if the price of fuel hasn't gone down, they'll be tying up. They're already restricting their time at sea because of the, the price of fuel. Um, it's just not economical to spend the time at sea. I suppose in an Irish point of view, our own fish supply is going to become scarce because the boats won't be able to put to sea because of the cost. While talks have been held by Agriculture and Marine Minister Charlie McConnellogue with the farming sector about food supply security, fishing organisations say the same urgency has not been shown about fishing. Sean O'Donoghue, Chief Executive of Killybegs Fishermen's Organisation, says this needs to be addressed urgently. We can't continue operating at these uh, ginormous uh, fuel prices. And uh, to really compound this, 
uh, we we actually have, uh, as well as the huge price, there is actually a shortage in actually getting uh, the uh, the fuel as well. So there is a there is a storage issue about getting fuel as well. But obviously, if the price stays at this, uh, it won't be. It isn't just the Irish fishing fleet; it's the entire European fleet will be will be tied up within a matter of weeks. This is. Uh, a food security issue as well, and uh, it needs to be addressed. IMRO, the island's marine resource organisation representing small boat fishery operators, warns that government policy relying on large-scale global operations is being shown as a supply weakness. Here's Enda Keneally, Vice President of IMRO from Inishir in the Aran Islands. Well, currently we're suffering from three blows in a very short order. The policy that we have been pursuing for a number of years has been supporting large-scale, essentially industrial-scale operations, not necessarily in Ireland, but uh, especially at European level. The quota access is um, a strange kind of phenomenon. It's kind of theoretically owned by the public, but it's kind of a de facto privatisation. The mackerel is a case in point where 23 vessels tend to control most of it. Um, uh, just the way it happens. But the, the three issues that we've had, Brexit has shown this up, um, then the COVID reactions um, has shown it up, and now we're engaging in this war situation, which is, there are three unprecedented um, situations, so it's really up to the minister. The minister must react to unprecedented situations. So basically that we're hoping that um, at this stage, it shows the weaknesses in the large-scale problems that we have, long supply chains, food security is a big issue. Now, these larger vessels use an awful lot of resources. They need an awful lot of um, oil to go out. The smaller scale, closer to shore, have shorter supply chains. They need less fuel. There's more of them around. There's about 1,200 vessels under uh, 12 metres. So basically, the lessons we need to learn really from as a country is um, Irish waters have loads of fish, but we don't. Um, we've more or less given away the fish. We've seemed to have fallen into the trap of not being able to produce all our own food. Also on the islands, Kogal Ilan Heron, the Islands Federation, has presented what it describes as shocking population statistics to the Arachthus Joint Committee on Social Protection and Community Development. Total population of the offshore islands in 1841 was 34,219. By 2016, that had reduced to 2,627. No other community has experienced such a dramatic decline according to the Federation, which says serious and continued government support is needed to ensure long-term viability of the offshore islands. Housing is a main concern. A survey of housing needs is being carried out for the Federation by University College Cork's School for Applied Social Studies. On the Arklow Bank off the Wicklow coast, the SSE Renewables intends to expand the second phase of its wind park, Under the new Maritime Area Planning Act, the company is seeking to boost proposed expansion of its existing wind farm from the previously planned 520 megawatts per year to 800 megawatts. As activity in the offshore wind energy development sector increases, 
Energia Group has appointed the Green Rebel Surveying and Data Services firm based at Crosshaven in Cork Harbour to carry out geophysical surveys for its proposed wind farm off the coast of Waterford. The Royal Canal Greenway, which covers 130 kilometres across counties Kildare, Meath, Westmeath and Longford, is proving very popular with visitors, according to Waterways Ireland, the cross-border body responsible for management of the inland navigable waterways. Over the years since it opened, Waterways says that 640,000 trips have been taken on the Greenway. Back to the fishing industry, and a 12-point plan to save it from disaster has been sent to government by the Irish South and West Fish Producers Organisation from Castletown Bear. It blames failure by successive governments to ensure that Ireland has a fair share of fishing opportunities in Irish waters for being the direct cause of untold hardship to coastal communities. Valencia Island Heritage Centre in Kerry intends to open for this year's season during Easter. A Heritage Week being planned for this year will feature stories from the lifetimes of island residents. The centre has received donations of a number of artefacts, including about the local fishing industry and a collection of poetry and folklore of the local area of Beginnis. HMS Caroline, the last remaining historic naval ship from the famous World War I sea battle at Jutland, is to remain in Belfast Harbour, where it has been since 1924. Seven years ago, it was opened as a tourist attraction, but there had been plans to move it to Portsmouth, Britain's naval centre. New support funding will keep it in Belfast. Coastal and island locations in and off Donegal, Mayo and Galway are being involved in the government's 5.9 million euro EU-funded life project to save the corncrake. It is to be overseen by the Department of Heritage. The main reason for decline in corncrake numbers is reported to be the increase in mowing hay and silage fields that destroyed nests during May and June-July. Marine Minister Charlie McConnellogue has allocated €25 million Euro to the country's seven fisheries local action groups to assist coastal communities overcome the impact of Brexit. The Seafood Task Force proposed the scheme to grow and diversify local economies by promoting growth of the wider blue economy. And finally, a look overseas. The UK has some of the fastest eroding coastlines in Europe. Of its 17,000 kilometres of coastline, 17%, that's about 2,900 kilometres, are being affected by erosion according to latest estimates. And in Chile, archaeologists have found the remains of what could be the oldest fisherman ever known to have drowned. He lived about 5,000 years ago, was about 5 feet 3 inches tall and aged between 35 to 45 years when he died. His skeleton was found in a grave at a coastal area near Atacama. Using scanning electron microscopy, anthropologists at the University of Concepcion found that he was probably involved in harvesting of shellfish and died by drowning in salt water. Geological records of this coastal region show evidence of powerful tsunamis around 5,000 years ago. And that's this month's Maritime News Roundup. Anton O'Callaghan reporting.
You're listening to the monthly Maritime Ireland radio show, bringing you comprehensive and informative news, comment and opinion about Ireland's maritime culture, history, tradition and development. The government has decided to protect basking sharks under the Wildlife Act. Why is that so important? Dr Simon Barrow joins us from the Irish Basking Shark Group to explain. Why should we protect basking sharks in Irish waters? Basking sharks globally are considered as vulnerable, which means their population is decreasing. They were reclassified by the IUCN in 2009 as endangered. Under the EU Common Fisheries Policy, it is prohibited from targeting, retaining, transshipping or landing basking sharks, even if they were caught incidentally as bycatch. This is an attempt to reduce the demand for basking shark products. Historically, basking sharks were hunted in Ireland by small-scale subsistent fishers along the west coast. Ackle Island in County Mayo is the most famous basking shark fishery in the world. Over 12,000 sharks were killed close to Ackle Head, with over 1,500 being killed in a single year in the 50s. It is very hard to tell how many basking sharks there are globally, but conservative estimates using genetic mutation rates suggest that there may be as few as five or 6,000 breeding sharks worldwide. A more recent estimate puts the total population as probably less than 10,000 sharks. When you consider that hundreds, if not low thousands, of basking sharks may occur in inshore Irish waters at certain times of year, it shows that Ireland is globally important for this endangered and vulnerable species. So providing legal protection under our Wildlife Act is very important. It also makes Ireland consistent with neighbouring jurisdictions, such as Scotland and Northern Ireland, where basking sharks are legally protected already. We share basking shark populations with the UK, so it is essential they are protected throughout their range. Legal protection under the Wildlife Act will mean it is illegal to hunt or injure the species, or willfully interfere with or destroy their breeding or resting places. Recent research by the Irish Basking Shark Group has shown that the west coast of Ireland may be a very, very important courting and breeding ground for basking sharks during late summer. In addition to announcing legal protection, the National Parks and Wildlife Service intend engaging with marine tourism operators and recreational and other sea users to develop a code of conduct to ensure that there is strong awareness of and compliance with international best practice when approaching basking sharks at sea. This is to prevent disturbing their natural behaviours, especially during feeding and courtship. There is great potential for basking shark tourism in Ireland, as those of you who have encountered or swam with basking sharks at sea, it is an experience you will never forget. This announcement is a really important first step in the protection of this iconic marine species, which Ireland is globally important for. We look forward to the rollout of marine protected areas for basking sharks over the next five to ten years, using the ever-increasing knowledge we are gaining on this species, including their movements and site fidelity, and identifying important areas for them. Already marine protected areas for basking sharks exist in Scottish waters. With huge pressures on our inshore waters from offshore renewable energy, marine tourism, aquaculture, and increased marine spatial planning, it has never been more important to ensure that impacts on basking sharks are fully considered during risk assessments to ensure Ireland continues to be globally important for this species for generations to come.
As Simon, also Chief Executive of the Irish Whale and Dolphin Group, which liaises with the Basking Shark Group, said, Historically, Ackle was a major location for hunting basking sharks, and there is an amazing connection between there and the sighting of a big number of basking sharks off Hookhead in County Waterford. Described by the Basking Shark Group as an incredible start to the 2022 basking shark season. The sighting was made by Charlie O'Malley on the 24th of March, six to eight nautical miles off the hook. He estimated there were between 100 and 150. The interesting connection is that Charlie hails from Ackle Island and his father was involved in the fishery off Ackle when basking sharks were more abundant. To the Midlands next and Loch Ree, where the RNLI and the Inland Waterways Association have joined forces, as Nia Stevenson, RNLI Irish Media Manager, tells us. Loch RNLI are moving home. It's not your average house move, though. Instead of packing up belongings into boxes and bundling everyone into a car with the family pet for destinations new, the lifeboat station is moving lock, stock and barrel down the road into a new €1 million Euro state-of-the-art lifeboat station. This brand new home is a world away from the temporary facility they were using and brings with it a series of familiarisation and training programmes for the volunteer crew. The funding for the boathouse includes a local community contribution of €100,000 raised in the Midlands last year an impressive feat at the height of a pandemic and for which the station and the Ornalai are extremely grateful. The final touches to the station have been happening over the last number of weeks and following the installation and testing of electronic and IT systems, the boathouse is, as I speak to you, due to go into service. The building is also home to a new clubhouse for the Inland Waterways Association of Ireland, the result of a partnership between the RNLI and the IWAI. The site is the original home of the Rice family, who generously bequeathed it to the IWAI with the wish that the organisation would benefit from its use. It's a wonderful partnership and I think a first for the RNLI having neighbours on site. The new boathouse has a slipway with direct access to the lake for the charity's lifeboat, Tara Skoogle. All of this is the perfect way for the station to celebrate its 10th birthday. The official opening will take place in June. The Ornelai events calendar is a packed one this year as the pandemic prevented occasions being marked, retirements being held and new additions being welcomed. That's boats and people. I've lost count of the number of calls I've had from people asking to be kept in the loop for their chosen station's occasion. Well, my advice to that is to follow the station on their social media account and pace yourself for the year ahead. Before we leave Lockery or in a lie, they had a busy St. Patrick's weekend with two call-outs to four people stranded on the lake. At the helm for each of the shouts, were two newly qualified helms, Liam Sheringham and Stuart McMickham. An interesting link-up on Lockery near Athlone, Neil Stevenson of the RNLI reporting. The finding of Sir Ernest Shackleton's endurance created great excitement. It was discovered last month in the Weddell Sea, part of Antarctica, claimed by several nations.
Athai Heritage Centre Museum in County Kildare has an exhibition devoted to Shackleton. The finding of endurance is the topic of this month's Mar Report, presented by Justin Marr. November 21st, 1915. This evening, as we were lying in our tents, we heard the boss call out, She's going, boys! We were out in a second, and up on the lookout station, and other points of vantage, and sure enough, there was our poor ship, a mile and a half away, struggling in her death agony. She went down bows first, her stern raised in the air. She then gave one quick dive, and the ice closed over her forever. It gave one a sickening sensation to see it, for massless and useless as she was, she seemed to be a link with the outer world. The wreck of the recently discovered Endurance is a monument to one of the greatest escapes of all time. It was a part of the Imperial Transantarctic Expedition, led by the great polar explorer Sir Ernest Shackleton, who was born in County Kildare. Endurance had been stuck in ice for nine months. It would be a further five before the crew would reach Elephant Island by lifeboat as they made their way to safety from the shifting ice flows which they had to settle upon. The Endurance, its, its original name was Polaris, but Shackleton named it after the family motto, which was, by endurance we conquer. That's Kevin Kenny, a member of the Athai Shackleton Committee, speaking on their podcast series, What Would Shackleton Do? About a month beforehand, in October, Shackle, the ship was canting over uh, at such an angle that they, they couldn't actually stay on it. The water uh, was coming into it because of the, the pressure of the ice. Uh, so they abandoned ship and the, the order abandoned ship was issued by Shackleton and they moved onto the ice. They got what supplies they could off the ship. Um, they took the dogs, uh, sledges, any piece of equipment they could get, the lifeboats, of course. And they were camped on the ice. It was really an extreme predicament they were in. Uh, the ship was their home. It was their only way in and their only way out. And they watched it slowly tear up, being torn apart by forces that they just had no control over. And as they lived, camped close to it. The best summary of Shackleton that... that is out there is um, Scott for science and exploration, a Munsden for efficiency. Uh, but if you're in a tight corner and there's no way out, get down on your knees and pray for Shackleton. And really, in an extreme situation, he was in his element. He was an, an optimist himself. He saw it as a really important quality. He was going to get everybody home. You know, as he says himself, he, he couldn't sleep at night a lot of the time. He paced up and down. His his mind was really bent towards, uh, wh how do I solve this problem? Their first inspiration is to try and get home, get home to safety. And they have this idea that they're going to try and drag the ships across the ice towards open water with a view to launching the ships into the southern oceans and aiming for the closest island, which in this case is an island called Paulette Island. Seamus Taff is a director of the Shackleton Museum in Athai. But that, of course, doesn't work out, unfortunately. They're moving across a landscape which is ice, which is hummocky. It's breaking up a lot of the time. And they're finding that they just can't manage the weight of the boats full of stores and all the men as well and other equipment. So after about seven days of, of trying to drag their boats north, they decide to abandon the task. 
Shackleton and his crew would establish Patience Camp on another floe and adopt a more considered approach, despite the hazardous conditions. It's very interesting that one of the quotes that Shackleton referred to in his book out as he uses this quote, that they now needed to put the footstep of courage into the stirrup of patience. What he meant by that was that they couldn't take or make any rash decisions. They would have to buy their time, carefully consider what their options were, and prepare for the best possible moment to launch their boats into the southern oceans to make their way to safety. They're effectively living on an ice floe which is moving all the time, and they're hoping that the ice floe will drift far enough north that it will reduce the uh, distance between themselves and the nearest island. They spend approximately three and a half months on that ice floe, making some progress towards the north, but back and forth, back and forth. And eventually there comes a point when the ice floe begins to break up and fall apart and they realise that they have to take their courage in their hands and launch the boats towards the southern oceans. Towards the end of their stay on Patience Camp, they realise that Pollet Island is in the wrong direction. And more importantly, the winds that would favour favour the journey won't get them to Pollet Island. So they focus on Elephant Island instead, which is about seven days' journey from when they first launched the boats on the 8th of April 1916. But by the time they get to Elephant Island, they're absolutely exhausted. Uh, bear in mind, these men have been on the, on the ice for 12 months. They haven't bathed, they haven't shaved. They're eating reduced rations all the time. So they just get to Elephant Island by the skin of their teeth on the 15th of April, uh, 1916. It's a significant um, stage in their journey home. It's the first time they've stood on, on solid ground in almost 18 months. After five harrowing days at sea, the men landed their lifeboats at Elephant Island. 346 miles from where the Endurance sank. But the journey was far from over. Elephant Island was inhospitable and far removed from shipping routes. Shackleton decided to brave a 720 nautical mile journey on the 22-foot lifeboat James Caird to the South Georgia whaling stations, leaving the majority of his 27-men crew behind to await his return with help. Shackleton decides that someone must go for help and essentially decides upon himself as the leader because obviously he's got the profile. If they, if they reach civilization, he's the man to send a rescue mission to someone, someone abroad. He decides to take five men with him. So who does he choose? First person he chooses is Tom Crean, that irrepressible Irishman from, from Kerry, a strong person both psychologically and physically and also an excellent man in small boats. He then brings with him Tim McCarthy from, from Kinsale, another Irish sailor, a man who's grown up in small boats and who is perfectly equipped to the task. The next man he picks then is Frank Worsley. Frank is the captain and navigator of the Endurance, but a man who went to sea at a very, very young age and an extraordinary skilled navigator as well. And the final two members of the crew then are John Vincent, a trawlerman from Hull, and a man called Chippy McNish from Scotland. So they leave Elephant Island on the 20, 24th of April, 1916. Oddly enough, the exact same day that the Easter Rising starts in Dublin. And it's a very, very tricky voyage. It's a voyage which is hard to imagine they, they think they can survive because you're, they're heading into the worst, most challenging seas in the world, the Southern Oceans. They first tack north from Elephant Island and then they tack west, trying to catch the westerlies. And they then spend the next 16 or 17 days on this extraordinary journey through the most uncompromising seas in the world. Having made land on the empty southern shore, Shackleton, along with Tom Crean and Frank Worsley, walked for three days through South Georgia's mountainous and glaciated interior to reach the whaling station at Stromness on the 20th of May. After several attempts, he would eventually return to Elephant Island with Chilean tug Yelko and the British whaler Southern Sky to rescue his men on the 30th of August 1916, four and a half months after having left them. 
The poem is called If by the British poet Rudyard Kipling. He actually had a copy of the poem framed and hung in, in the cabin of his ship in Endurance. And then when the ship was crushed to the ice, he retrieved that from his cabin and it carried it on his person all through the boat journey to South George as well. So this is the first couple of, of lines of the poem If. If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs and blame it on others. If you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting. And I think that's a wonderful line. I think it really feeds into the entire story. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting. If the one thing the endurance story tells us that this is something that Shackton's men could do. They could wait and not be tired by waiting. Many thanks to the Shackleton Museum for allowing us to use clips from their fascinating series. You can listen to What Would Shackleton Do at the Shackleton Museum website, shackletonmuseum.com. My thanks to listeners for interesting and lively correspondence to the programme email address Show at gmail.com and do please continue to send your views and comments. There's been quite a lot of interest in and support for the Draftnet Fishermen featured in our March programme, with support particularly for the preservation of heritage fisheries, an aspect of Irish maritime history and culture which deserves more attention. Colin White, a draftnet fisherman on Lochrus Moor estuary in County Donegal, tells me he's working on a dissertation of the fishery there for the MA in Public History and Cultural Heritage at the University of Limerick, exploring ways of making the fishery's heritage and culture more accessible to the public and ways in which the fishery can be utilised to further understanding of Atlantic salmon stocks. I've heard about the Wexford caught boats from listeners and from Owen McGarry in Wexford about a shanty workbook for schools, a non-profit heritage project. And on history, I had emails from David Redding Burns, originally from Liverpool, an artist and graphic designer now living in Stuttgart, Germany, from where he emailed me to tell me he has written The Ballad of Tom Sweeney. after coming across our podcast and tracing back a previous broadcast in June 2016 of my Then This Island Nation series, after I had tracked the story of the last man to be hung from the yardarm of a sailing ship by the British Royal Navy. 
I did so because I had discovered the sailor was Irish, from Cork, my home place, and also named Tom McSweeney. I tracked the story to a cemetery and a grave in Malta. From our archives, here it is. I'm standing here in the corner of a graveyard at Viterosio, just outside Valletta in Malta. I'm standing against the railings, coloured silver painted, with some flowers, some floral tributes on the grave, some lights lighting, and it's all to the memory of Thomas McSweeney, a young sailor aboard HMS Rodney of the Royal Navy, who was hung from the yardarm on that ship on the 8th of June 1837 at the age of 23 years. Thomas McSweeney came from County Cork and it's an amazing feeling standing here looking at the photographs which are on the grave, one in a memorial plaque and another, a larger one, pasted to the window in a wall overlooking the grave. It's a moment of full emotion because it has taken me quite a while to track down the story of Max Sweeney. It's an amazing story and a sad one. One perhaps how an Irishman was badly treated by the Royal Navy just because he was Irish. The story is a long one and it has taken me years to get here, but standing here now I feel a certain amount of emotion in having got to the graveside and then the unusual feeling of seeing one's own name on a grave in a corner of a quiet cemetery. It looks pretty well tended still, even though it dates back to the 8th of June 1837, but obviously somebody comes to the grave and tends it from time to time. It is the only grave around here which is actually railed in by silver railings and it looks like some special treatment was given to it. Thomas McSweeney at the age of 23 was hung from the yardarm in a public execution aboard the British Royal Naval warship HMS Rodney in Valletta Harbour, the main city of Malta, on June 8, 1837. He had enlisted at the age of 19, four years before, in 1833, in the Royal Marines, being recruited at Cantorque in North Cork. Marines were then carried aboard warships for disciplinary purposes and as attack landing forces. He was a private on HMS Rodney when he became involved in a scuffle with Sergeant J. Allen of Kent, England, during which the sergeant fell a distance of six feet onto the main deck, striking his head. He died five days later. McSweeney was charged with purposely and maliciously pushing Allen and causing his death. He was court-martialed by the Navy. Eddie Attard is a retired Malta policeman who is a best-selling author and a respected crime historian. He has also written and researched The Max Sweeney Story, edited police publications and a Maltese journal about crime issues. He studied the case of Thomas Maxweeney, whose story, because of his being my namesake, has intrigued me. In Malta, Eddie Attard told me his view of what happened leading to McSweeney's execution. First of all, McSweeney was a Catholic, and uh, we are Catholics. And uh, second, because um, we still believe there was a miscarriage of justice. Yes, it, it, it may be said he, that he was guilty of a crime, but the, um, 
he was guilty of uh, not a lawful murder, as we say, but it it was more than a manslaughter then. Um, uh, he didn't have a fair trial. We believe in that. And uh, after his execution, and this is something, his execution was unique in Malta. It was a horrible execution. It was not the first execution that was carried out on a ship, on the Rodney, the same ship where the crime was committed. But after he was hanged, his body, his body was catapulted about 50 or 60 feet above by means of ropes. And he stood on a mast of the ship in the middle of the Grand Harbor. And that's not the way executions should should be should be held. Um, uh, yes, uh, um, after the execution, the uh, confraternity of uh, over here in Malta, it was a confraternity of the uh, Holy Rosary, which we call it, um, asked permission to have his body to be buried in a Catholic um, cemetery, and it was granted. Um, uh, and as you can see today, uh, his grave is uh, taken care of. Um, in the past, it, it used to be taken care of more than today. And it was believed that there were some apparitions because of the fact that it was, he was, he should have received, let's say, a life imprisonment, but the punishment of hanging was too much. And that is why some went to pray on his grave, and they said that they felt better and the sort. There is some reports that apparitions were seen at the cemetery and it could have been Max Sweeney, although one describes it as fair-haired and in the photographs he appears dark-haired. At Vittoriosa, we are not aware of any other apparitions except for that of Max Sweeney. It fascinated me when I saw the grave that there are still lights, little candle lights yes. shining there. So somebody is obviously still giving some attention to the grave. Why is that? Because, as you can see in our cemeteries, the graves are taken care of. And now it has been tradition, passing tradition from even one family to another one. Perhaps there, is, there are two or three families who take care of Max Weenie's grave, clean their own graves, their family graves, and, and once they are there, they clean the Max Weenie's grave. It's fascinating to see that the grave is in such a corner with a railing around it. Yes. It, it does look different to other graves. It looks, to because, me, it looked almost a bit special. Yes, because the grave was, at first, it was taken care of by the confirmatory, which I, which I, I just said, and uh, I presume that they bought the grave. And it's 
normally grapes in Malta, normally a grape gets three coffins, two, or perhaps, perhaps six. Now, when the buriers are much more than that, they um, put the old ones in, uh, in somewhere else. But uh, in the case of Max Sweeney, it has never been used. Aye. It's still his grave and his grave alone. As a historian, Mr. Retired, I, I get a number of people saying to me as they researched the story that the, the verdict was very rushed. There was a bit of anti-Irishness. Would that be a fair assumption? There were, it was not a bit of anti-Irishness, it was a lot of anti-Irishness. And uh, first of all, the, the trial, did, it was not our courts that heard Max Sweeney's trial. It was a court-martial. And uh, although witnesses were heard, there was only one witness in his defense and his favor who, who, who said that he, he, he pushed the man. Now, pushing a man, he had no uh, firearms in his hand, nothing, not, not a knife, not a stick. He just pushed the sergeant, and the sergeant fell only six feet, we call it in the waist. He, he, he had a fell of six feet, and uh, but the fell um, caused major injuries in, in his head, and he died four days later. And but um, court marshals are not so for for, for the accused. I think uh, the court martial, they have the verdict before the trial begins. And this was a, a case like this, and there is no doubt in this. Eddie Attard speaking to me in Malta. And suspicions that the young Irishman could have been subjected to what today would probably be regarded as racial abuse. Hanged by the neck from the yardarm was a brutal, horrible punishment involving sailors of the naval squadron pulling the unfortunate condemned man by a noose around his neck high into the air where he choked to death. By today's standards, the verdict of murder against Maxweeney appears to have been severe and it is questionable if he was given a fair trial. However, a British naval record about McSweeney says, Several myths have emerged regarding McSweeney. They arose for several reasons. An inaccurate knowledge of the facts concerning the murder and an attempt to distort the facts for religious or political reasons. St. Lawrence Cemetery in Vittorioso is one of the oldest cemeteries in Malta. It took me some time to locate it, a very old cemetery. But when I walked to its entrance, something told me in my mind immediately where Maxwini's grave was. And without knowing exactly why, I was able to walk directly to it. It's not often easy to find a particular grave in a cemetery. This was my first time in Malta, my first time in the cemetery. And for some unknown reason, I knew exactly where his grave was, even though it had taken me some time to find the cemetery itself. 
That was a strange experience. What appeared to be a myth have grown up around his grave, which claimed his ghost has been seen, and that it and the grave have had miraculous qualities, though nothing has been proven. The grave is tended regularly. Unidentified people maintain a constant light on it. The local authority, Burgle Council, who were helpful to me in research, could not identify who maintains this interest. Eddie Attard and Colonel Keith Wilkins, OBE of the Royal Marines, now retired, who has questioned the verdict of the court-martial and whether it was a miscarriage of justice in lectures he has delivered on the story, have been of great help to me in my research of the story. A personal story, the coincidences of which still amaze me. The programme email address is Maritam Ireland Radio Show at gmail.com, phone and text 0872-555-197. That's email Maritam Ireland Radio Show at gmail.com, phone and text 0872-555-197. The Maritam Ireland Radio Show is broadcast on community radio stations around Ireland and on Apple, Spotify, Mixcloud and via Google Podcasts. Sound supervision by Justin Mark. There is daily maritime news on Twitter. Look up at Tom McSweeney. And the programme weekly newsletter is published on our website, tommacsweeneymarine.ie, on Facebook and on LinkedIn. Until next month, the usual wish of fair sailing.